those two elements, I think, crystallize sort of like, what's happening here? This feels different. What's going on? That became like the invite to the world. We did just a hell of a job rabble-rousing and getting people going, man, this is interesting. And our summit was incredible. It was unheard of to have such a well-run event and well-attended event. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Today's guest is Andy Lowry, a pioneer in the development of wearable technology. I've known Andy for several years. I've helped share the story of the groundbreaking industrial wearable manufacturer he co-founded, Railware. The company already had a following when it launched in 2016. They had 50 paying Fortune 500 customers already on board. And I'm not talking about beta. I've never seen anything like it. The company tapped into a need the world didn't even know it had, and it changed the game for industrial teams across the globe. What if frontline workers in the field could be connected to their entire business and at all times? Andy's vision of a head-mounted, voice-activated tablet was a massive success before the pandemic. But COVID pushed it beyond what he ever envisioned as companies were forced to look for new ways to keep their teams connected remotely. The pandemic turned Railware into a truly essential product. Andy is a lot of things. He's a retired Navy officer. He's a nuclear engineer. He's an entrepreneur with two successful startups under his belt. He's a visionary product leader. He's even a passionate gamer in his spare time. He also happens to have an absolutely fascinating story that we're going to tell today on Before It Happened. Andy was born in a small town just outside St. Louis and later raised in the western suburbs of Chicago. He was the youngest of his parents' three children, and when he was still very young, his family learned that he had an extremely high IQ and enrolled him in the prestigious Avery Coonley School for gifted students. He later attended a public high school where he struggled academically. He refers to his high school years as his wandering years, a time when he was unable to apply his gifted mind to his studies. Can we go back to your gift? What was your gift that was recognized academically at a young age? I don't talk too much about this stuff, but I guess I've been a a good test taker or whatnot. (laughs) 
my dad was a psychologist. I had taken a lot of different these IQ tests and such and hadn't been able to be measured on these things. I had this above a 150 type IQ on the IQ tests. Are you a Mensa member? Uh, no, nah, it's easy stuff, that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and kid, you know, it's an element of intelligence, you know, being able to solve puzzles and being able to put together blocks in a certain order quickly or being able to make associations and inferences and things. It's a type of intelligence. It's not the only type of intelligence by any stretch of the imagination. But for me, mathematics and taking objects and thinking about what to do with them and such like that, that's always been a kind of a gifted spot for me. So I tested really well on the basic IQ tests and things. And so they admitted me based upon those kind of testing results is how I got into the Aver Coonley School. So you're senior year in high school, and you decide to join the Navy, but I read somewhere that you actually wanted to join the Marines. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess being a sort of glass half full type of way, tell us I didn't do real well in high school. I was wandering, trying to find my way, participating in a lot of extracurricular activities, not school endorsed in all cases. And so at that time, I was sort of lost, and I started in college, but then quickly dropped out. I didn't know what I wanted really to do, and I was with my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now for 30 years, Melissa, and I was at her house, and she wasn't in the room with me. I was watching a television program, and on came a commercial, and the commercial just had this young guy swooping around a sword fighting dragons and the and the dragon was spewing out fire and he was hitting it back and I'm thinking it's the next movie going to be released or something and I'm at the edge of my seat wondering what the heck this is all about and at the end of the commercial this is must be the greatest marketing guy that ever was lived in the world for me anyways he slips up around that sword and he turns into a marine and I went oh I see marines fight dragons (laughs) that's what I got to go do. And I ran up to Melissa right then. And I said, I'm going to go join the Marine Corps, Melissa. And she said, (laughs) well, let's talk about that. (laughs) Then next hour or two, I got in my car. I knew where a local recruiting station was. I wanted to go talk to him right away. I went to the guy's office. And as I got to the office, there's a sign on the door that said, I'm sorry, but I'm out of office for the day. And I went, oh, Man, what am I supposed to do now? I had all this built up momentum and all this passion. I was super happy about being a Marine and fighting dragons. And there was out of the office. And then there was a light on at the end of the hall with another office. I didn't know which. And I heard someone moving around in there. So I kind of walked down the hall. I turned my head and I peeked in around the corner. And I peeked back again right away. I saw a guy in a white suit. He said, hey. Hey, I saw you come in here. I said, oh, yeah, sir. What? Excuse me. I'm sorry. I was looking for the Marines. He says, no, you weren't. You're looking for the Navy. (laughs) And the rest is history. (laughs) Naturally, Andy tested well and was quickly selected to enter a training program for nuclear reactor operators. His job was to maintain and repair the nuclear facilities on ships and submarines. He excelled in that role and was selected again to take part in a program that sent him to college to earn an engineering degree before rejoining the Navy as an officer. He attended the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign at the dawn of the internet in the early 1990s. He was classmates with the eventual Netscape co-founder Mark Andreessen, 
now an influential venture capitalist in the Valley. Andy became obsessed with the tech industry and its culture of innovation and entrepreneurship. But first, he had to finish his obligation to the Navy. What was it like to be student and military in school? Were you restless? Did you want to get back out at sea? Or did you have moments where you did go out? I was so like wanting to get into the entrepreneurial stuff, that dot-com. I had joined a couple little entrepreneurial things already. I had been recruited by some dot-com companies. I was really hungry to take part in that explosion that I was participating in as a, as a student and witnessing. And then obviously everyone from U of I and those type of colleges were getting pulled out West to come to Silicon Valley, but I couldn't, you know, I had the military obligation, so I had to move on. So what I really was trying to get through college quick for was like, let me get my military obligation out of the way so I can go be an entrepreneur. At that point in time, I was so eager to try my hand at building businesses, even back then in my mid-20s. What were those companies when you're a student, kind of market segment or problems that you were working to solve? One that I'll speak about was something called Math Anywhere. And it was a small company. We were the epicenter of Wolfram Research that does Mathematica. And so there was a lot of offshoot startup ideas that would be produced as a result of being the town where Wolfram Research and Mathematica was born. And so we used Mathematica, which is like a MathCAD, similar to MATLAB and others, to basically distance teach very early. I mean, this is before telepresence and all the telework and all that, but we would distance teach high-level math, calculus, and other things. And the idea of the business at the time, at the time there was online social sciences programs, but very little online technical programs. So we were in the mid-90s building a company that could go to military, could go to potential prison systems, that could go to different places and offer not only social science, but mathematics, and science degrees. And so that was the idea I had begun to embark upon, but then the Navy felt, you know, if I was trying to do that and they're sponsoring me and all of this. So I had a discussion with my commanding officer and decided to pull back from those entrepreneurial adventures until a little bit later in life. So you're in school, you're an entrepreneur, you're in the military, you graduated, and then what happened? Were you back in the military full-time or... Were you breaking out and doing an entrepreneurial project? Now, the particular program that I was selected to do commissioned, even though I participated in ROTC, I got commissioned out of what's called Officer Candidate School, which is the old OCS from the movies that have the gunny sergeants, the Marine Corps gunnery sergeants and such that do the training. I was commissioned as an officer out of that school in December of 1997, and then I went back to sea on a variety of different surface ships to go serve out as an officer, various roles and responsibilities, driving ships, running nuclear reactors, and that sort of thing. And were you always in, were you in Atlantic, Pacific, or multiple? Where were you? It's interesting. I've been stationed in South Carolina and Norfolk, Virginia, and Rhode Island. I've been stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, I've been stationed in San Diego, California. So I've been a lot of different places in the military. I've seen both fleets, Pacific and Atlantic fleets, over my tenure as an active duty guy, but ended up as my final resting spot in San Diego, which then vis-a-vis got me to Los Angeles after I stopped active duty service in 2001. 
After leaving the military, Andy's first stop was Tyco International, where he sold fluid system components to refineries and nuclear plants. He was recruited out of that division to lead a semiconductor unit that the company had just acquired. Eventually, he ended up with the global defense contractor Raytheon, where he served as a chief engineer and technical lead for several different divisions over six years. Working as part of these massive multi-internationals in many ways mirrored his experiences in the Navy. Corporate life can be just as structured and rigid as military life. And before too long, he started to remember his earlier passion for the creative seat-of-your-pants culture of the startup world. Let's talk a little bit about the juxtaposition between military duty and entrepreneurship because the military and corporate life are really structured. So that's one set of dynamics. And then the startup world is total opposite, which is very philanthropic and, you know, I would say coloring outside the lines and more unstructured. How did you blend the knowledge of both and the passion for the other to then go into tech? I think more than seeing my professional career and what I've done is sort of like an overarching story or an overarching motif of some sort where I said, hey, I'm going to start down this particular path and this is what I want to be in 10, 20, 30 years. I instead take approach of like being very, I think what I call mission driven. And somebody will give me some mission by saying, you can't win this next generation jammer program at Raytheon and this big $12 billion program that Raytheon wasn't doing well in the competition. They say, we're going to go put you in charge of this and we're going to go have you try to win this, but you're not going to be able to do it. And then that becomes kind of my mission. And even though that's a corporate and I got a Raytheon as a boss, you know, with a lot of rules and a lot of regulations, I still have to accomplish a mission through my leadership with the constraints of my given situation. So failure is no option, you know, like they say in NASA or whatever, you know, it's, it's, you've got to succeed. So if you have to win this program, here's the pieces of the puzzles and all the influences and all the sales and all the salesmanship and everything that you have at your disposal, now go win this program. And so I kind of view in a way, all a life entrepreneurially. <laughs> and it could mean that I'm helping train up a division of people to be the best watch team in the military that responds well to some sort of thing like 9-11, which John C. Stennis was responding aircraft carrier to the 9-11 attacks that helped fly close air patrol over LAX, which was a mission in a way that I was in charge of the reactors that day. And that was something that my team had trained and prepared for one sense of the word entrepreneurially, you know, we dressed a little different on our watch. We all had our nicer uniforms we wore when we would stand the trial watches. We had our little culture. And because of that, even in a structure, a huge structure, a socialistic structure like the military, you can still have entrepreneurial feelings or entrepreneurial adventures, maybe adventures, maybe not mission, maybe adventures is even a better way to turn some of these things that I've done over my career. A little bit of the latchkey kid as a, as a young adult? <laughs> yeah, like a big man Peter Pan or something. You know, I just <laughs> like my adventures and each company that I've been at or each military division that I've been in charge of or been a part of, I really get all excited about it. I get really excited and I really think about all the great things this company can be and how I can help out. And I get myself all wrapped up 
and I say, ah, how am I going to run this show and help with something? But quickly, you have to take your head out of the clouds in all of the situations of feeling that way, because a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people can get inspired. But then it's about taking your inspiration and making steps towards climbing towards that inspiration. And I think most people in this day and age, and even in Silicon Valley, I think a lot of that is starting to fall apart more and more, I'm seeing, meaning that there's so many people trying to do the hustle out there, the quick grab, or how do I make a shortcut, or how do I do this, or how do I do that? And hard work is like, well, you're a chump if you do hard work. In a way, I see that a lot, that attitude. And I feel like that's just polluting kind of every element, the military or, or all of these different elements of life we just talked about, military, corporate, entrepreneur, all these hustlers that try to cheat the system. To me, it's an unappealing way of going, you know, to me. I'd rather do the hard work and have a lot of fun and have a lot of adventures. And that's kind of more of how I've always looked at every job I've had and every job I probably will have for the rest of my life. So let's jump to after Raytheon and clarify me if I'm wrong, but you went to Daiquiri in LA. Yeah. So at Maycom, I learned about components and semiconductor. And at Raytheon, I learned about systems. At Raytheon, I began to look at the operation, maintenance, and repair of various systems because that was a big, big component of my programs. This is really, really not understood, I think, by a lot of people. 60 or 70% of the cost of a program is in operations and sustainment. After you've built the systems, after they've been shipped and fielded, the operation and, and maintenance and sustainment of those systems are the most costly element of the burden of those programs. And so what I started to look at is clever ways of cutting costs and improving ways of connecting folks. And we had a couple of different homegrown systems at Raytheon that we built internally that was doing some of that sort of remote mentoring, as we know it to be called today, or or remote expert. And so we had some of that. And at the same time, I had known a another fellow by the name of Brian Mullins, who's still a tech entrepreneur as well. He's in England now with the artificial intelligence company. I think he's making some big noise. But Brian Mullins and I were buddies from the Navy and the Navy Reserves. And he had asked me to participate in this new tech called augmented reality. And augmented reality I hadn't heard of. No one had. It's 2010. And he and I started a company called Augmented Dynamics in 2011, which later became known as Daiquiri, which made this helmet that was like the HoloLens system, but had a hard helmet shell that it was wrapped in, and it predated basically HoloLens. It was very early on tech. It was excellent fun. We built some of the craziest, most outlandish platforms and products and things that were way ahead of their time. But ultimately, we couldn't get our business model to work. And in 2016, I left, uh, mutually agreed separation, and I embarked down the route with another fellow named Chris Parkinson on the, what we know now as Realware. So before we jump to Realware, I want to go back to Daiquiri. You raised a lot of money at Daiquiri. So that's another component of entrepreneurship and leadership is in the tech world is the fundraising, the partner, strategic marketing, and all those other components, operational How did you adapt to that? Was that just another mission to you? Yeah, it pretty much was. We were sort of lucky at Daiquiri. Daiquiri had a very, very 
large, wealthy, single investor named Tarsadia that came in early when we still weren't anything hardly but some ideas and invested with us kind of along the way. And so although we did look to take in other investments from various other folks, you know, even some investments from like Ashton Kutcher and others like that we took on, but the predominance of all the investment was done by the Starsadia group. So I did less work on the raising cap in that quote mission because we had a good relationship with our very wealthy investor. And I did more work because I got more investment from more people. Many, many people had to invest in realware for me to make it work. And so I had to do more work in getting the investment that time. So it's a lesson for people in entrepreneurial. It's, you can go for one person that has a lot of money that does all the investing, but then you sacrifice a great deal of power to that person of the organization. Or you do a lot of little investors, but you're doing a lot more work to get all of those little investors but you don't sacrifice as much power to any one individual. So it's a pro and con on the number of investors and the size of each investment per investor you want to take. Remember Google Glass? When Andy decided to leave Daiquiri to launch Realware, Google's smart glasses technology was the talk of Silicon Valley. But when it launched in 2013, it flopped. Volumes had been written about why the product failed. It was released too early, it had usability issues, it was too expensive, and there was too much hype. Andy paid attention to all of it. He knew Daiquiri had been onto something, but he was thinking bigger. What if he could learn from Google's mistakes and jump the line in the wearable technology space? So Google, it was a Google X group product, which they do some of the incubation, and they've got three areas of their factory or whatever as they build ideas and commercialize them. And so Google Glass was an acquisition they bought. And in 2013, they released it as a consumer product. They thought it could be maybe a device accessory that could be used with a phone, see text message, see incoming call, make calls verbally. And there's a really funny skit on Saturday Night Live where a lot of the problems humoristically are pointed out. And it's uh, had a lot of issues with the voice interface system. It wasn't able to kind of filter noise as well. And so you could get yourself in a loud situation and not be able to talk to the device. Or just the system itself had a combination of head gestures and voice gestures that were a little difficult at first to understand. So it didn't sell well into consumer, even though they tried hard to push it. But where people were trying to use it, as you pointed out, was an enterprise. So all over the place, all these enterprise pilots popped up using Google Glass, even though it wasn't at first intended to be an enterprise product, it was intended a consumer product. But they used the consumer product in order to try to do hands-free work. So as I saw sort of what we were doing at Daiquiri being what I'll call overkill. Like we were trying to boil the ocean at Daiquiri and do everything and anything and and, and make like the future of work today, which would take years to get to eventually, which we sort of learned along the way. We wanted to get to a minimum viable product at Realware, something that I knew would be commercialized and sell today. And I looked at companies like Google At Daiquiri, I watched the market gravitate towards them, not necessarily because Daiquiri was any worse as far as the functionality, but because it just was a simple product 
that had a couple simple features. It worked well when it did work and it helped fix some of these problems. And so it was a bit of the light bulb around realware that if I just fix the problems with what I saw in the enterprise that Google Glass was having, I think I'm onto something. I think there's a real demand for it if we fix those problems. What was the laser-focused problem that you wanted to fix with the railware platform? So I kind of already went at it. Certain elements of industrial design that I think just for style purposes, because it was a consumer product, they tried to minimize, make it minimalistic. They tried to almost fade it away so you couldn't see anything about the glasses barely is the idea anyways. And I think that that's a mistake when it comes to industry. Sometimes in industry, you want to know that that person has a piece of equipment on. You want it to stand out and say, he's with an HMT1 over there or whatnot. And people aren't as concerned with their fashion statements at times. I mean, it's not, there's no concern with if you look crazy or ridiculous wearing something at work, but at the same time, you know, you're not going out to the bars wearing an HMT1. And so the idea was, is to take some of those consumer-related elemental features and go way away from them and focus heavy on rugged and heavy on industry and noise and all the things that I had through those years of experience in the military and all the things we talked about earlier, I had come to understand and appreciate as being really the crux of the problem, you know, with Google. Like they were having all these issues. They thought, why, why, why? Well, the crux of the problem was, is you need to re-architect your mind, go back to the system level and try to understand the problem from an industrial enterprise perspective versus doing a consumer perspective and then trying to shoehorn it back into industry in a boomerang way. So that's what I did with Realware. I had a a product that Chris Parkinson, my co-founder and team at Copen, where he had worked, had built prototypes of this product and had tested it in the market and had all tested with just unbelievably great results. And so the combination of that sort of vision that we talked about that was kind of swimming around in my mind at Daiquiri and having these elements of Google Glass being played out and I'm watching it, with Chris approaching me with these prototypes, I kind of saw that this was a juxtaposing of elements all at the right time. And timing became kind of the element that was so interesting that with all the digital advancements and the CDOs being hired, the chief digital officers being hired, all the idea of of, of reaping the benefits of digital work in the workforce, it all came at the same time. And so all of this sort of helped spur Realware's acceptance and and success, drove its acceptance and success. One of the things I'd like you to chat about, because I've never seen this happen again, Andy. We had the summit and you had 50 plus beta customers that have actually paid, not just friends and family beta, but how did on an entrepreneurship level that that summit was so instrumental? Can you talk a little bit about how you curated that customer following and alliance with the company? Because I think that really shows strength as a leader. Yeah, it's a great question. You've got me thinking to those early days and the elements of why it worked. Why did this work? You know, I don't know. I mean, some days I go, why did it work? Maybe I got lucky. 
or something. Because I remember a conversation with a gentleman. I don't I don't remember his name, but there is someone that says, "Look, Vucix gives me these things for free, and uh, you know what are you doing? Why are you trying to sell me something that everybody else is giving away for free?" And I was going against the grain there by saying I can't afford it. The bottom line was two things. All I can say is I sold as best as I could the idea of appealing to a higher power to my customers. And what I mean by that is I say, we all talk about how cool entrepreneurialism is in our society, in capitalistic society. We all talk about the benefits of entrepreneurialism. We all talk about how it's creating jobs, how it creates tech in our country, how all of these nationalistic spirits are all ported into this idea of our entrepreneurialistic culture. And yet, when it is time for the rubber to meet the road, you know, Walmart, whoever, <laughs> you're not willing to put a dollar down to show appreciation. You're not willing to do the paperwork to do your part in allowing a success of an entrepreneurial company. Okay. That was my attitude towards it that this is all of us contributing together. You at Walmart, you at Shell, you at whatever. We're all kind of put pitching in a little bit of money, a thousand bucks, five thousand bucks, whatever, for this piece of equipment or that piece of equipment to keep these little companies with a little bit of the lights on and try to keep a little bit of the people fed and a little people working. Yeah, we're going to sacrifice because we can make out real big if we win. And so we'll sacrifice. But these big companies can help contribute by not saying, how much can I take away from these little companies? How much can I keep them over a barrel and give them to give everything for free? They need to look themselves in the mirror and see, is that an objective overall in a big picture that they want to really kind of bring? That was one element that I talked to customers about. But then the other thing I had was uh, I was blessed with a really unbelievable man by the name of Alex Rainsberger. At the time, Alex was the CEO of a Belgian imaging technology firm called Barco Tech. He was one of those first 50 customers that signed on with Railware before it launched. And he became the company's biggest champion and an informal advisor. Alex is the one who convinced Andy to take on the role of CEO, and the two remain friends to this day. He was the biggest evangelist on the market, probably to this day, about the product and the advantages of it and why it's so much better than everything else on the market. And he was a partner. He was a value-added reselling partner in Austria. And I was blessed with Alex because Alex came with Chris. And I can't tell you how important it is to have someone outside your family of entrepreneurial people pulling the weight, being an ally that you can put up again and again and again to the front stage and say, look here, not me saying this is working, he's saying it's working. And for that first three years, he was my trailblazer. He was my pointed example to say, it can work, people. Look at Barcotech in Austria. Little by little, they're making it work. I mean, I can't tell you how much I owe Alex Rainsberger. We're super, super close friends, he and I now. I didn't even know him at the beginning, but I'm just telling you, everybody needs an Alex Rainsberger. And it's really from those two elements, if you think about it, from sort of appealing to the higher power and saying, let's all support entrepreneurship in our actions every day, one. And two, by finding my chief evangelist officer, 
outside the organization as a partner, those two elements, I think, crystallize sort of like, what's happening here? A lot of questions. What's happening here? A lot of software partners. What's happening here? This is different. This feels different. What's going on? And that became like the invite to the world. And then strap the megaphone called Brian Hamilton, who's one of my co-founders on, and everybody in the world hears about it within a few days. And with your help as well in those early days on the press side and the mass communication side and the social media side, we did just a hell of a job rabble-rousing and getting people going, man, this is interesting. And our summit was incredible. It was unheard of to have such a well-run event and well-attended event. Railware grew rapidly over its first couple of years, but the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated that growth even more. Despite its success, it had remained a hard sell for some buyers. Andy says he heard the same thing from many prospective customers. We love the tech, but how much do we really need it? When the pandemic hit and everyone went remote, all of a sudden, just about everybody did. No one ever got fired for buying Microsoft or no one ever got fired for buying IBM. There's an old adage in corporate that says at the end of the day, why stick my neck up when it might get chopped off when I'm perfectly happy getting my paycheck just doing the status quo? And I was running up against that at the end. Everyone saw the benefits of using wearables and digital. Everyone saw the safety. The evangelists internal to Shell and others say, guys, ah, you know, can't you see this? We need to go. We need to move forward. But there was, I feel, an apprehension due to the uniqueness of the offering. And COVID changed that because travel went to zero. There was no optionality to put people on airplanes anymore. They had to put a machine, a computer that you could wear on an airplane so that it could be sent to someone in the field that they could then transmit back what they were seeing to someone who knew how to fix it. That became the need. And now what people ask me a lot is now that that need is over or becoming over, waning, will it then retract the interest in continuing? No. It won't. The ice has been broken. <laughs> that feeling of don't buy Microsoft has now been, hey, don't buy anything but realware. We're, we're in the club. We made it in the club now. COVID put us in the club, so to speak. People are all over the world buying realware by the tens of thousands, I believe. I've stepped down now, so I'm not running the, the company anymore. Well, I would think within the, in the era of essential workers becoming even more essential that railware we know would even be in more demand. Oh, yeah, it's great because now people that look at railware have hundreds and hundreds of examples of deployments that are pilots that are working. They've got so much data to draw on and so many big companies that are using railware now that people don't need to worry anymore about, oh, let me wait and see. Wait and see is over. They can go buy. They can go get going. And we have a lot of ways with Microsoft Teams, with Cisco WebEx, with Zoom, all of these different places. They all have lots of ways to get going right away with RealWare, just like it was an iPhone or an Android phone. So it's great. I mean, it's been a really, really beautiful story, and it continues to be a beautiful story. So let's talk about 2020. So you made the pivot to leave. Did you just feel mission accomplished, mission complete? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I realized with J.P. Morgan and the team that I had arranged as investors that the company was entering a new era. 
And uh, this era was like I had done 18 months, 18 months and now 18. So it was like I've been seeing these epics play out. And this was the epic of, okay, we've gotten a very now nice Series B investment. We're on our way to profitability at the beginning of, of 2020. And where will this go? If we got 18 more months, who knows to find out. But what I do know is that Andrew Krastowski is a hell of a lot more equipped with his captain skills at running a, a starship railware into kind of public domains or dealing with large banks and dealing with uh, large investors. He has reams and reams of more experience than I do. When he was the chief operating officer, I used to talk of people. Every, I said, I don't know why he, I, he's working for me. I ought to be working for Andrew. We've got this uh, pyramid inverted here because, you know, I'm kind of the more get out there with a hammer, William Wallace type, and he knows how to be a, a nice guy to lead the, the overall team and lead up, lead down, lead up. He's a good sort of, I mean, just to be honest, he's, he's a good bureaucracy guy. He, he knows how to do procedure. I mean, that's the realm or the world that he came out of. And so I felt, wow, what a, this is an unbelievable opportunity as it all kind of came together at that point. And where I was sitting there already at CEO is I was going, well, what's now next? Where is Realware falling short? Where have we been trying to get to with Realware? And for some reason or another, we can't quite get there. And where that was was exactly where I started Realware to go. And that was into the end of the road. I'm talking about out in the middle of the ocean on an oil platform in the North Atlantic Sea, down in uh, some jungle in Africa where a young daughter of a, of a person there is sick. I wanted to go places with realware that cell phones don't typically go. That's where I wanted to go with realware. But I realized there was a major problem. <laughs> and it wasn't realware. It wasn't Microsoft. It wasn't Teams. The problem was that connectivity and compression is tailored for large bandwidth terrestrial networks. I mean, that's what they're built for. They're built for LTE, Wi-Fi. That's how we look at video, data, and audio is through that lens. But I found this company in Australia that looked at it through a lens differently. They looked at it the lens through satellite communication and through underwater remote operation and through underwater video cameras. And they created software that can optimize on top of what already has been optimized, further optimize for low-grade non sort of large bandwidth terrestrial networks. Now it can work on terrestrial networks too. It's not like it doesn't work if it goes to LTE, but the purpose of it has been built around lousy satellites that don't have good connectivity because of rain and such, drop a frame, drop a packet. I went, oh man, I can't believe I found Realware's solution here. I found a solution. And so with Andrew being ready and willing to take the helm and run Starship, great big Starship Realware, I said, let me go see what else I can do to help customers where I see there being a critical need. And that's what I went off to do with Harvest Technology Group. And what's your role there? Yeah, so right now I'm working, my title is president of Harvest Technology Group Incorporated, which is their wholly owned U.S. subsidiary that we established. Recently, we announced we made an acquisition deal. We struck a deal with a company called snapsupport.io. You can look them up. They're an IoT platform uh, that has a a small yet growing and and significant customer base 
that they'll bring in that revenue with that a- acquisition. And we're looking at a go-to-market that will both capitalize on the goodness of that IoT platform one that already exists and continue to uh, spur that on into a market that it's still sort of unique solutions are still needed. And then underneath that, we're going to power that engine with industrial grade connectivity. And that's the part that is so exciting to me because now when we do look at Baker Hughes trying to use a, a BGAN or something or Shell out in the middle of a North Atlantic platform trying to get up through an MRSAT connection, we have the tech now to do that where a lot of the other companies, most of the other companies, to be frank, almost everybody, has nothing like this, has nothing like this. It has not been integrated into an industrial platform. It's not proprietary. It's not highly secure. All the things that we're doing to make this platform really, really robust. And so I'm excited about what it means for Realware. I'm excited even more so for what it means to that little girl in Africa who's looking for life-saving aid that might be able to be provided at a city somewhere, but not remotely. And now by being able to connect for either a lower cost or a more stable connection out to these rural areas is a great project that a lot of people, I mean, Elon Musk is trying to do that with some of his satellite initiatives in the rural regions of the world and such. So there's a lot of people trying to do this. This is my piece at trying to solve that, trying to get information out to the corners of the world where wide bandwidth networks are not available. And does your work with them prohibit you working with other entrepreneurs and startups, or are you still being prolific and working with others? I do have time. You know, I'm in a stage of my career where I do more coaching than I do actions now. I'm looking at folks with missions. In fact, I'm an active advisor, very active advisor with Apogee Semiconductor, and they folks can look that up. They're a hardware company that does silicon semiconductors of various types that are space hardened, that are pervious against, or at least resistance against space radiation, but also have very, very high performance parameters like commercial consumer parts. So a different industry brings me back to Raytheon Maycom, but they're entrepreneurial. They're about to do a series A and I'm advising them and uh, we're having a great time. So I do do other projects to your question uh, about being an advisor or helping other startups here and there as I see fit and as I see that I can help. That was Andy Lowry. In a way, his new role with Harvest is allowing him to do what he's always done as an entrepreneur. He's bringing new technology to market. Only this time, he's not starting from scratch. The acquisition of Snap Support created the opportunity for Andy to lead a startup within a company with what he calls the modest goal of changing the world of telework across the globe again. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>